Thank you for tuning in, everybody. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. And folks, I got to tell you, you don't appreciate how much this particular uh, recording setup is until you don't have it. Last week was uh, our Memorial Day episode. I was recording it at my grandparents' house, and I had to set up in the garage because I didn't want to disturb my grandparents as we're recording. And you know, I'm sitting there with a fold-out lawn chair, which is where the mic was positioned, and I had to put a footstool on the armrests of the chair to sit my laptop so I could actually record it. And it was a mess. So I'm, I'm here, back in studio, with the mic nearby, the computer in front of me, a nice comfy chair to sit in, and I like it. Give you a quick update on the podcast. We should be added to Google Play by the time you listen to this. So that was the, uh, the last area where we had not yet been syndicated. I'm told that that should be done within the next day or two. Um, and... Thank you, all of you who have tuned in so far. We have hit our first milestone of 1,000 subscribers. We hit it with our last episode. I'm very excited. What I want to do now is I want to go ahead and try and schedule some uh, guests to come on in, in addition to me rambling on about the news and politics and the law. If you want to join the conversation, and I want all of you to please do that, follow us on Twitter. The show Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. I am at Greg underscore Doucette. That is at G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. And feel free to send me your comments or questions using the hashtag Fisk. That is hashtag F-S-C-K. So for this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about our Cheeto-in-Chief, the beloved Donald Trump. I don't have much on him this week because, frankly, there's been a lot of other stuff that I want to focus on instead. We're going to talk a lot about our court system. There's been a lot of new updates involving police and the law. And then in the back third of the episode, we're going to talk about the Fifth Amendment and whether or not you providing your passcode to your cell phone violates your right against self-incrimination. So stick around for that. A couple big stories politically this week. The, the first one really was the Paris Climate Accord. And our president decided that he was going to make a very important announcement in the Rose Garden, even though all of us already knew what he was going to decide. But he went ahead and had a press conference anyway, where he had this particular gem. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. And not to be outdone, our vice president, Mike Pence, decided to follow up on that a little bit more at a rally for U.S. Senator Joni Ernst. This administration, administration was elected to represent the people of Pittsburgh, not Paris. How great is it to have a president who's more concerned with Des Moines than Denmark? Now, I don't know if the citizens of the 15 American cities named Denmark or the 22 American cities named Paris were offended by that particular statement. 
but you get the point. There was this great big dog and pony show as to whether or not we were going to withdraw from an accord that Trump campaigned on withdrawing from. So I don't know why we had to go through all of this uh, great hullabaloo about it. And I'll be honest with you, right? I might lose some subscribers over this, but for once, I more or less agree with the president as far as the Paris Agreement in itself. I really don't care about the Paris Agreement because if you actually go look at it, look at its text, it's not really anything meaningful. You know, there's no compulsory compliance in there. There's no way to enforce the agreement. The targets were voluntary. And that you can kind of tell that by the fact that you had so many signatories to it. You have a bunch of countries that signed on because they knew they weren't going to have to comply with anything. Uh, Nicaragua did not because they wanted a more aggressive agreement. They wanted something that was actually enforceable. So as far as the withdrawal goes, doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of the climate because the agreement itself is not going to affect climate change. Our reduction in carbon emissions are going to come about through incentives, research, and development, something that the Obama administration already helped put in place. Companies are already capitalizing on that to try and reduce their emissions. The part where it's, it's dumb politically is because this reinforces the notion that the United States is unreliable that we can't be trusted to honor our word. Now, yes, I know the, the agreement was something that Obama signed. It was never ratified by the Senate, so it's not technically law. But the reality is, if the agreement is voluntary, it's not really putting any kind of burden on American businesses. What is the point in withdrawing from it other than to give a middle finger to the rest of the world? Which we all know is the only reason the Cheeto-in-Chief happened to do that, but that becomes rather dangerous when just last week you have Germany saying that they can't rely on us for anything. You have us leaking confidential information from the Israelis. You know, we are in a position where we're abandoning our allies, and that becomes problematic in the event that we end up needing them in the future. So then, of course, in the middle of the week, we have this random non-story that occupied everyone's attention for at least 24 hours involving low-quality props. Pictures and video depicting comedian Kathy Griffin holding the bloody, decapitated head of President Trump are no joking matter for the Secret Service. The image is shot by photographer Tyler Shields, creating a backlash on Twitter. President's son, Don Jr., tweeting, disgusting but not surprising. This is the left today. They consider this acceptable. Imagine a conservative did this to Obama as POTUS. Now, Don Jr. has proved that the apricot doesn't fall far from the tree because conservatives actually did that to Obama throughout his eight years as president. Guess what? They did it to George W. Bush, too. I don't know if y'all recall, Game of Thrones had Bush's severed head on a pike in one of their first seasons. It wasn't that big a deal. You know, there are really only three points to be made with this particular Kathy Griffin thing. Number one, Kathy Griffin's not funny. She hadn't been funny for a while. So whether or not anyone thought this was going to be funny, the fact that it's not is not earth shattering. But number two, we've been executing politicians in effigy since we were British. All right. We still out in Boone, North Carolina, burn King George III every year. If you look at the state seal for my home state of Virginia, there is an Amazon woman with a spear in one hand a sword at her hip, standing over the dead body of a politician that she just killed, and one of her tits is out. You know, that's part of our state seal. It goes back to the state coat of arms back 
before the Civil War. It's a normal part of Americana. And there are various spots throughout American history where we've had editorial cartoonists, preachers, comedians, drawing up all kinds of ridiculous things about killing politicians. I mean, that's just part of the American way. It's just normal venting. So point three, the folks that are so supposedly outraged by this are hypocrites. This is all just solipsistic pearl clutching by people who make fun of liberals and the whole grievance industry and how they're so outraged by anything conservatives say. And then a leftist does something that they don't like and they do the exact same thing. It's absolutely fucking ridiculous and a waste of everyone's time. Thankfully, that drama got swallowed up by more hemming and hawing about the Paris Accords until a couple nights ago when there was some news out of London. Uh, welcome back. We'll have the press preview in uh, just a moment, but I just want to bring you some uh, breaking news. Uh, police uh, are saying that they are dealing with an incident on uh, London's London Bridge. You can see the location of that crossing the Thames there. Uh, the first uh, hint that we had that there was, a, that there was something happening there uh, was a report from um, the managing editor of, uh, of the political magazine, The Spectator, in fact. He was suggesting uh, that there were armed police attending that particular incident. We were later found out that Terrorists drove a van onto London Bridge, running over several pedestrians. Then when the van crashed into a light pole, they got out with knives and stabbed folks at several uh, bars in the area. At the last count, uh, seven were killed and about 20 or so were hospitalized. Now, our hearts, of course, go out to the people of London. That's their second terrorist attack in two weeks, their third in three months. But you probably won't be surprised to learn that our Papaya POTUS himself really wanted to make sure that his thoughts were known because within minutes, he ends up retweeting the Drudge Report where Drudge said there was a fear of new terror attack and then tries to pick a fight with the mayor of London saying at least seven dead and 48 wounded in terror attack and mayor of London says there is, quote, no reason to be alarmed. Now what the mayor of London said was that there was going to be an increased police presence in the area over the next few days and don't be alarmed. Basically the same thing Rudy Giuliani said after 9-11. But his other tweets really give you some insight into the dangerous mindset that we're dealing with. So, one of his first tweets about the incident said, quote, We must stop being politically correct and get down to the business of security for our people. If we don't get smart, it will only get worse. So essentially what he's saying is that your God-given, constitutionally enshrined rights are really just a matter of political correctness, and we need to go ahead and throw them on the brush fire so that we can have some security. Now, you're all smart people. I don't need to remind you of the quote from Benjamin Franklin that those who would sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. Uh, but this is now your president. And he goes on a few uh, moments later tweeting, quote, Do you notice we are not having a gun debate right now? That's because they used knives in a truck. Now, don't think about that tweet too closely, because if you do, you realize it makes no fucking sense. We're not having any kind of debate right now, because there were still dead bodies on London Bridge getting taken up by the coroner. If there are a few things I can't stand, it's these fucking politicians who want to capitalize on every tragedy that happens when we can't even get the bodies to the morgue yet. But then, is he proposing we give terrorists guns, or does he want to ban knives and trucks? I don't really understand, because that doesn't really make any sense. Essentially, what he's arguing is that because Britain has absurdly strict gun control laws, one of the most restrict sets of gun control laws in all of Europe, that that minimized 
the fallout from terrorism. If that doesn't become a gun-grabbing clarion call for the quote-unquote Republican president to try and infringe on your Second Amendment rights, I don't know what is. Now, bear in mind, this guy was endorsed by the NRA. So I'm going to go ahead and make sure to buy some extra ammo tomorrow just in case. The guy is a fucking imbecile, and I don't understand for the life of me how anyone can defend him with a straight face. So let's go ahead and talk about some criminal justice news. The police officer, Timothy Lohman, who shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice in 2014, has been fired. But of course, he wasn't fired for killing a kid. He was fired for being a liar. Apparently, he misrepresented part of his job application. So either way, good riddance to him. Down in Louisiana, we have a 12-year-old who's dead, this time not directly because of the police, but indirectly because of the police. A guy was fleeing in a vehicle, and the officer decided that rather than try and apprehend him at some later time, it made more sense to shoot repeatedly into the car. So, of course, the driver was hit in the process of dying and bleeding out, and ended up running over a 12-year-old who happened to be crossing the street. The young man has been only identified as Sammy at this point. Our hearts go out to his family. And this kind of is a reminder of how dangerous police chases are, shooting into occupied vehicles is. You know, there are other ways of apprehending people that you want to apprehend. You don't have to put the public at risk trying to get them immediately. Out in California, the California Supreme Court has overturned a case because prosecutors were deliberately going out of their way to exclude Hispanics from the jury. Um, we'll talk a little bit about this in a future Law 140, this notion of racially tainted uh, juries and bats and challenges and whether or not it ever makes sense to, uh, to challenge the fact that prosecutors are trying to exclude minorities. This is the first time in 16 years that the California Supreme Court has found that racial bias improperly tainted a verdict. So we'll have a link to that for you in the show notes. Over in Detroit, a man has been exonerated after spending 25 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Desmond Ricks is the guy. He was convicted back in 1992 because supposedly his grandmother had a gun and they claim that was used to shoot the guy who happened to be killed. Well, guess what? Turns out the police fabricated the ballistics evidence. They had actually kept the bullets in storage these past 25 years as his case was uh, making its way through the system and discovered that the bullets that were used in the trial did not match bullets fired from the grandmother's gun. The police just made all that up when they gave that information to the district attorney. So now 25 years later, his life has been devastated and he's missed out on all kinds of things that you miss out in 25 years, but he is now free at last. We have yet another Supreme Court decision that was unanimous and will help incentivize even more police brutality in the future. If you happen to follow me on Twitter, you might remember me talking about a case in January called White v. Pauly, where all eight justices got on board to essentially say that police snooping around a guy's house without announcing themselves and then shooting him dead when he thought they were robbers and came out the back with a shotgun, that that was okay, and that the family can't get any kind of compensation for that because, you know, that's how we are nowadays. We allow people to snoop around people's homes and shoot them when they try to defend themselves. Well, California for a while had this thing called the provocation rule that said that if you were a police officer and you approached someone without a legal basis to do so, if you provoked a response from them... And in the process, they happen to draw a weapon. 
that you had to use a different type of analysis to determine whether or not the police had violated your rights when they in turn draw their weapons and try and kill you. It's something where the California courts were trying to address rampant police brutality within the confines of prior Supreme Court decisions. You remember from our first podcast, we talked about the role of precedent and how what the Supreme Court says has to be followed by the lower circuits. Well, turns out that the Supreme Court decided unanimously that the provocation rule was not valid. It was not good law. It was not authorized by their prior precedents. So in the case of Los Angeles versus Mendez, they got rid of it. Essentially, in that case, uh, a guy was out back taking a nap and police approached him without any reason to do so. Uh, that guy happened to, you know, being woken up by somebody, grabbed a gun and got blown away. And the Supreme Court said, hey, that's fine. You cannot make a claim under 42 U.S.C. 1983, the statute that we use to uh, ensure that police are held accountable when they kill people. So this was, again, another one of those unanimous decisions where all of the justices are on board because the circuit courts have tried to create rules to address a problem. And the Supreme Court says that goes too far. But at the same time, the Supreme Court doesn't actually help put anything in place to address the problem. And your Congress critters are fucking useless, so they're not doing it either. So just giving you a heads up on that. Let's talk about North Carolina, because while I love my state immensely, we are not immune to the fuckery that goes on in our justice system. The Charlotte Observer has done a mammoth, incredibly huge expose on our prison system. And I'm going to give you a link to kind of the, the summary of the special reports. But what I want you to do is there are five parts to this series. And each of the five parts has a bunch of subparts to it. And basically, they go deep in our prisons and talk about the fact that corrections officers are supplying cell phones, supplying drugs, fucking the inmates, helping to arrange people to be beaten and killed. Uh, it's ridiculous. Like the scope of it, I read it and I was like, holy shit. And then I read it more and I was like, holy shit. And then I read it more and there's still more there. It just really, uh, when I tell you it is a huge, huge expose, um, it, it's pretty damning. It's wildly damning. And I can't articulate to you in words on a podcast how damning it is. I'm just going to give you the links and make sure you find it in the show notes and go read it all because holy shit. Uh, Also, in my neck of the woods, we had a prosecutor just north of where I live in Person County who resigned because he essentially is a fraud. He was a crook. He was stealing money from the state. His name is Wallace Bradsher. He was the elected district attorney. And when he first got into office, he decided to hire his wife to work for him. And uh, which was a no-no. I mean, we don't allow that. That's the type of nepotism that we have laws to prevent. Come to find out, there was another district attorney recently elected in Rockingham County named Craig Blitzer, who had also hired his wife. And both of those guys got told by the state, no, you can't do this. Having your wife work for you is not allowed. So being lawyers, they said, oh, we can get around the rules by hiring each other's wives. So Blitzer went to work for Bradshaw. Bradshaw's wife went to work for Blitzer. And they both paid their wives. Neither of the wives showed up to do any work. This all got leaked when... uh, One of the staff members raised it as an issue and then she got fired. You know, if you're going to go ahead and defraud somebody, don't fire the whistleblower. Like, that's a pretty stupid fucking decision. Anyhow, both Blitzer and Bradshaw have resigned 
and this past week it was announced that criminal charges will be filed against them. So these two uh, prosecutors are on their last legs as free men because they basically helped steal close to $100,000 from the government, from the taxpayers of North Carolina. And speaking of taxpayers, it is budget time for our state-level Congress critters. The House budget was passed this week and included among it is dramatic cuts to legal aid because why the hell do we need to have poor people in our court system when we could just lock them up? So if you happen to be engaged at all in politics in North Carolina, you might want to reach out to your legislators because legal aid does a lot of stuff for a lot of people and there are poor Republicans too. So reach out to them and to kind of give you a highlight of how much we love fucking the poor in North Carolina In addition, the budget has a provision that makes it harder for judges to waive court costs. Now, court costs are a big fundraiser. It's how the politicians are able to fund certain things without raising your taxes. They've spiked dramatically over years past. Doesn't matter whether there are Republicans in office or Democrats in office. They all love hiking court costs even more because there's an assumption that if you get charged with a crime, you're guilty. This whole notion of innocent until proven guilty is totally foreign to anyone serving an elective office. So one of the powers that judges have is that if you're too poor to afford court costs, you know, say for example, you're a broke drug addict whose money needs to go to getting treatment as opposed to paying the politicians in Raleigh, a judge can forgive or waive those particular costs. It doesn't happen often, but it usually happens with people who are dead broke, who are too broke to get lawyers, have public defenders, have drug addiction issues and that sort of thing. Well, rather than recognize that we have three separate and co-equal branches of government, the legislature has decided to restrict judicial discretion even more by preventing judges from doing that so we can go ahead and have true bona fide debtor prisons again to make sure that we can lock people up who can't afford to pay. It's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know how the final budget is going to turn out, but the damage that we're doing to our court system every day just continues to blow my fucking mind. So enough with the news. Let's go ahead and talk about the Fifth Amendment and passcodes for your particular phones in our Law 140 segment of the podcast. Now, this particular Law 140 segment was suggested by a listener. So just know I listen to your feedback and I love it. And please give us more. So you can always reach me at hashtag FSCK. That is hashtag Fisk on Twitter to go ahead and give me your suggestions. There was a news story this week where a man in Hollywood, Florida, which is in Broward County, was sentenced to 180 days in jail for refusing to give police the password to his iPhone. He was held in contempt of court. The man, Christopher Wheeler, insisted that he had already given the passcode to police, but the number did not work. And rather than believe that he actually had given them the correct code, the judge thought that he was lying and went ahead and sentenced him to jail. And one of the questions was whether or not giving your passcode violates your Fifth Amendment right against incriminating yourself. Now, let's back up a little bit. So the Bill of Rights to the Constitution has a lot of sections that deliberately make it harder for police to prosecute people because it was a very common practice in colonial times that the magistrates could just have anybody taken willy-nilly for any reason. 
So the founders put in a lot of restrictions on government power in the Constitution. The Fourth Amendment, for example, limits unreasonable searches and seizures. The Sixth Amendment provides your right to a trial by jury. The Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And the text of the Fifth Amendment reads, quote, No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be in witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. The Fifth Amendment has a lot of stuff in it, and each of those clauses matters. Now, the, most of the time you'll hear me talk about due process, that have to have due process a law that is huge. But what we're going to talk about today is the snippet that says you can't be compelled to testify against yourself. It's also called pleading the fifth. Now, this is something where the, the case law and the doctrine is incredibly complex. It's evolved a lot over the course of our two centuries as a country. And because of that, there's a chance I might screw it up trying to convey this in a way that makes sense for radio. So make sure that you pull up the, uh, the case notes and look at the actual uh, case law that I've linked here because some of this stuff is going to matter. Um, so one of the things that the court has done over the course of centuries is to distinguish between what is considered testimonial versus non-testimonial stuff. So the case, the, the amendment rather, speaks to the fact that you can't be compelled to be a witness against yourself. That implies that you're in court, that you're testifying under oath. The court has distinguished non-testimonial things like providing a fingerprint or providing a blood sample on the idea that that stuff isn't necessarily testimonial. That's just your basic physical identifying characteristics. So providing that doesn't violate the text of the Fifth Amendment. And the court has kind of expanded that over time to say that things like providing a voice sample, so if someone claims a defendant had said something while committing a crime, you can be compelled to say that exact same thing in a voice lineup to see if it applies to you. Um, they've been compelled to wear a wig to see if they would look like somebody in a lineup. Uh, the list goes on. And this distinction uh, matters a great deal because if something is non-testimonial, the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply at all. If it is testimonial, it may or may not apply depending on what has, uh, what has taken place. So to give you an example... The case of United States versus Wade is a 1967 Supreme Court case where a guy had been indicted on bank robbery, was in jail, and without giving notice to his lawyer, was taken for a lineup, told to put strips of tape on his face like the robber had done, and given a list of words to speak so that he had both a visual and auditory lineup taking place. And the Supreme Court had to address the question of whether or not saying put the money in the bag on command violated the right against self-incrimination and whether or not him his lawyer not being notified violated the sixth amendment right to counsel and what the supreme court said was that the lineup piece the speaking the visuals that did not violate self-incrimination at all because 
it doesn't relate to anything that is testimonial in nature. He's just providing his physical characteristics, how he looks with the tape on his face, how his voice sounds, and not anything that would ultimately be used against him. So this is one of the, the key cases where you have this distinction between what is testimonial and what is not. And then you fast forward a few years to the case of Fisher versus United States. In this case, these were several different cases that were all consolidated, and the issue was whether or not the IRS could compel people to produce documents that would in turn end up showing that they ended up committing tax fraud. And what the court decided in that case is that the production of these documents wasn't a testimonial act. So I'm going to give you an excerpt from the syllabus. So the syllabus is something where the uh, the clerk of the court essentially condenses what the justices have said. So this is not the actual text, but it summarizes it very well. And essentially, the court says that the Fifth Amendment does not independently prescribe the compelled production of every sort of incriminating evidence, but applies only when the accused is compelled to make a testimonial communication that is incriminating. Here, however incriminating the contents of the accountant's work papers might be, the act of producing them, the only thing that the taxpayers are compelled to do, would not in itself involve testimonial self-incrimination, and implicitly admitting the existence and possession of the papers does not rise to the level of testimony within the protection of the Fifth Amendment. So this is what has become known as the production doctrine to this whole evolution of case law, that producing something is not testimonial unless it is. Because you know if we're going to have an exception, there has to be an exception to the exception. And that came about in 2000 during the Whitewater investigation in the case of United States versus Hubble. So Webster Hubble was one of the uh, guys working with the Clintons. And in 1994, he entered into a plea agreement where he was going to go to jail and in addition, agreed to provide to uh, the independent counsel, Kenneth Starr, stuff relating to the Whitewater, uh, I think it was real estate. I, don't quote me on that. Whitewater was a long time ago. I was a freshman in high school back then. Anyhow, when his, uh, his jail time was up and they were like, hey, give us these documents, Hubble invoked the Fifth Amendment. He said, hey, I can't produce these documents for you. You haven't given me any detail on what it is that I'm supposed to produce. And in doing that, I'm going to end up incriminating myself. So the question before the Supreme Court was whether or not, if, a, if the government can't describe with reasonable particularity what it wants produced, is producing it something that would violate your Fifth Amendment? And if you do produce it, is it something the government can use against you? And what the court says was that if the, gov if the government can't describe with particularity what it wants, then yes, that would implicate your Fifth Amendment rights, and no, they cannot use it against you at trial. So Hubble's conviction was, uh, or charges against him rather, were thrown out by the district court and by the appellate court and by the Supreme Court affirming those lower court decisions. So as part of this evolution of the case law, you have it where producing documents is not testimonial, but... It could be if the government can't describe what it wants with sufficient particularity. There's also an exception to that called the foregone conclusion rule that says that if what you're providing is going to be a foregone conclusion anyway, it doesn't implicate the Fifth Amendment. So going to the uh, taking the cell phone context as an example, you have to separate the fact that we already have prior cases that say providing a fingerprint is not testimonial. But even here, if the government knows you own a phone, 
and says, hey, we want to go ahead and check your phone, you giving them the passcode doesn't prove anything. It just proves that it's your phone, which the government already knows. That's different from if the government has a phone that may or may not be yours. They don't know if it's yours or not. And they say, give us the passcode. By you giving a passcode that works, you are in essence implicating yourself by acknowledging that you have the ownership and control of that particular phone. So this is where it gets very messy. And this is something that it's not new. I mean, you've had similar cases relating around uh, passwords to emails and social media accounts and that sort of thing. And the gist of it is, even though it's very messy, the courts have to look into this very detailed analysis as to whether or not providing the passcode is a foregone conclusion. And right now, there is a, it's not been resolved by the Supreme Court. There is a current circuit split between, I want to say, the Third Circuit and the Eleventh. Don't quote me on that. But it is something that's going to have to be addressed by the Supreme Court eventually. Sorry, quick side note. A circuit split is where one circuit rules one way on an issue and another circuit rules another way on an issue. And the Supreme Court needs to decide which circuit is right. So this type of situation is what you have with the case out in Florida that we mentioned at the beginning of the segment, where this guy has been compelled to give up the passcode because it's a foregone conclusion that he owns the phone. It's not going to provide any new insight to the government on that particular piece about ownership and control. And the password he gave didn't work, so it seems like he's being openly defiant of a court order, and therefore he was held in contempt for that 180 days. That's different than if a court finds that someone had genuinely forgot their passcode. So, for example, if you're accustomed to using your fingerprint and you forget what your password is, theoretically, you can't be compelled to give it up because you don't remember it. Um, in addition, one other way that DAs can get around this is by offering you immunity for it. Now, when I say immunity here, I don't mean immunity for any crimes that they might discover when they get access to the device. I mean immunity for the very narrow purpose of confirming that you do in fact have ownership and control over the device. So let's say that they give you immunity, you provide the passcode, they then find out that you have committed all sorts of crimes. What will happen at trial is that they can't use the fact that you used, that you knew the passcode. They can't use that against you. But what they'll do is they'll use the evidence they found against you and they'll find some other way of confirming that you had ownership and control over the device at that time. Another thing they can do is by having the court order you to um, enter the passcode yourself outside of their presence and purview so that you're not giving the government anything, but then give them the device after it's unlocked. Or if you encrypt your computer hard drive, give them a decrypted copy of it because then you're not implicating what's in your mind. You're not giving anything up that might uh, affect your Fifth Amendment rights. You're going back to the generic production doctrine that producing things is not a testimonial act. So what does this all mean boiled down? One, use a passcode to lock your device, because if you use something like Touch ID, the fact is the government can force you to give them your fingerprint already no matter what. So that piece is, is a foregone conclusion. The passcode is a better option. But if it's something where the government has a warrant to search the device, your options are slim. Now, keep in mind, this all relates to Fifth Amendment and self-incrimination. This is a separate issue from a warrantless search of your phone like the court had in Riley versus California a year or two ago. A warrantless search of a phone is not allowed. The Supreme Court entered a bright line rule that said you can't do that. That's not proper. Um, but when it comes to matters of self-incrimination, your thumbprint 
is always going to be accessible to the government, so you should use a passcode just in case. But even then, whether or not you're going to be able to uh, avoid disclosing that is going to hinge on whether or not the government already knows that it's your phone. So, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this particular week's podcast. Thank you tremendously for tuning in. Please remember to join the conversation on Twitter. The show account is at Fiskamall, at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can tweet us using hashtag Fisk, hashtag F-S-C-K, with your thoughts and questions. And as always, please tell your friends about the podcast. And if you're so inclined, I would love if you could leave us a review on the iTunes store to kind of give an idea to other listeners what we're about. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope all of you have a great week. Uh